This is Werewolf the Podcast, a podcast about the role-playing game, Werewolf the Apocalypse. Have you heard of high-level games? If you're a content creator looking to make your dream a reality, you need high-level games. High-level games does layout, editing, and development support such as Kickstarter and more. Even if you're not a creator and just want to enhance your game with exciting new supplements, go to highlevelgames.ca and check out Dark New England for V20. High-level games. We want to help you level up your role-playing game. Highlevelgames.ca Welcome to another episode of Werewolf the Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Josh Heath. Today, today is a special day. I am joined by a friend who I really deeply appreciate and have enjoyed working with and being friends with for quite some time, but we've never met in person. We've just done this digital sort of friendship thing. So at some point when COVID is done, we will get together and play some games together, and I'm looking forward to that deeply. So I am joined today by Jim Dealey. Jim, how are you doing today? I am great. I have been looking forward to this for weeks. This has been, uh, this. I get a whole weekend of werewolf hanging out with my buddy Josh Heath, and it's great. It's awesome. So today, specifically, I asked Jim to join us because we're talking about a very important book to him and to us. Uh, we're talking about Werewolf the Dark Ages. This is the very first Dark Ages werewolf book that has ever been produced. And Jim, tell us a little bit about your relationship with this book and our relationship with this book, as it were. I'm glad you asked, Josh. This book was what got me into werewolf. In the, it was 2000, I was running my first were Vampire of the Dark Ages game, and I was looking for some more trouble to get my leeches into. I picked up a copy of this, my well-beloved, well-worn copy of Werewolf the Dark Ages back in then, and I read through it, and I'm like, holy crap, these guys are more badass than the vampires. And I'm like, this is awesome. Why am I running Wetfire and is that running this? Mm-hmm. And this is, this is this where is I'm an met amazing them. introduction to Werewolf. I just want to yeah. say that I agree with you. Yeah. This is an amazing way to get to meet werewolves. You're meeting them kind of at the peak of their, the best times for them, probably, ever. And this, I read this cover to cover like dozens of times, and I'm like, I can't put my vampires against these guys. They'll destroy them. Yep. Um, and the and the more or less every encounter between vampires and werewolves in the past 20 years that I've had has proven that right. And. So this has been a beloved entry on my shelf for the past 20 years. And it's what got me into three different things that have been massively impactful to my life. Not only into Werewolf, but also into the fledgling Storytellers Vault back in 2018. I joined the Facebook group and I saw a post from this guy about, hey, is it okay if we do a new edition of Werewolf of the Dark Ages? Because they're not doing... Werewolf of the Dark Ages W20, are they? Not an official release anyway. And and he's like, uh, and the the guy who's running the vault at the time said, no, that sounds like a great vault project. And then he said, so who wants to volunteer to help me with this? I think I sprained my digital arm throwing it up so high and so hard. And I'm like, yes, please! And that was my first Storyteller's Vault project. And it's been in development limbo. We'll talk about that towards the end. But it was my first Storytellers project. It's where I met most of my writing tribe 
And it's where I met Josh. And Josh was the one who gave me my start as a freelancer. And I will always, always be grateful to him for that because he paid me to sling words at things. And it was great. And we've had a very productive writing relationship working together since. We're working on pieces even now. And I hope it continues for many, many years to come because I love working with you, man. Yeah. It's just I, great I, fun. I, I appreciate that. Um, I enjoy working with you as well. If I didn't, I wouldn't keep saying, hey, let's work on a new project together. You know, and we do keep coming up with new things that we're working on. So it's great. So, yeah, that it's it's a very special book to me for that for those reasons. And I want to bring werewolves raging back to the dark ages. But we'll talk about that more at the end. Awesome. We need to dive into this this wonder of literature. So let's do this by the numbers to start with, and then we're going to backtrack to the cover and do the introduction. So like a plan by the numbers, this was published in 1999. So it's in keeping with around the time frame for the other books that we're reviewing. I actually thought it came out in 98 initially, but it didn't. It was in the 99 release. It was written by some new folks, some folks that I hadn't seen before, Heather Curatola in particular. Um, then it's got Harry Heckel, Forrest B. Marchenton, Dina McKinney, and Ethan Skemp as writers, and additional material by Sean Jaffe. Um, it was edited by Eileen E. Miles and art by a whole bunch of amazing people that we know both were kind of fresh to White Wolf at the time and seasoned White Wolf artists, uh, John Cobb, Michael Gatos, um, Alex Scheichman, and Ron Spencer. So great like spread of people. There are more artists. There are a lot of artists that worked on this, um, but the cover art was done by Dan Brereton. Dan, I apologize. I butcher your name every time when I see it, but I want to say that generally the art in this book is really, really solid. It's one of the art packs that is available on the Storyteller's Vault. So if people want to use this art for anything, go and grab that art pack. It is free um, and it is well worth every piece just to have it. Uh, I totally agree. The artwork in this piece is absolutely top notch. I mean, all of it shows the clear hand of an art designer. There was a clear style they're working from a style guide. It all fit together. You could tell the different artists, but they were all drawing from the same inkwell of inspiration. The theme and the mood is clearly communicated. It's just great stuff. I've yep. used it before. I'm going to use it again. Yep. What are your thoughts generally about the cover, Jim? I have some general thoughts, but what are your specific thoughts? Oh, um, that looks like the aftermath of a successful leech hunt. Right. Um, a small group pack of werewolves have put a pair of leeches back in the dirt where they belong. Um, the choice of winter scene always appeals to me. I can't imagine why. Um, and it wouldn't be much of an impediment to either side in that fight. And I would have colored the fight in a really interesting way. That could have been a scene out of any Werewolf of the Dark Ages game I've ever run. I've run that scene. I'll run it again. It's great. And, yep. uh, and uh, just it really evokes the mood and theme of the piece right from the very beginning. Absolutely. Like this piece of art tells you everything you need to know about the story that's going to happen within it and gives you the fodder to tell a story from it. I love art that lets me go, ooh, I've got a story hook idea from it. And this cover grabs me immediately and makes me go, I want to tell this. I want to tell a story so this art can come into play at some point which is mm -hmm. exactly what you want. Cool. So from there, we get into the cover, the inner cover, and then this uh, in, this initial story. 
I have an interesting like side note about this John Cobb art in the in in the cover in the back uh, the like um, it would be the first page basically mm -hmm. as you flip open the cover. This is a I believe it is a reference to the uh, Beast of Jevedon, which is a French legend of a werewolf-like creature that uh, stalks, uh, I believe it is a monastery, but I am not mem remembering the uh, original myth correctly. But I immediately look at this and go, ooh, I know the reference being made here. And I really appreciated that. Like there's lots of art in here that evokes the medievalist style. And again, I think that's awesome. So. Yeah, it's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I've read the Beast of Zebedon story. Can't remember it off the top of my head to know if you're correct, but I think the monastery detail is right. Um, it's been a long time since I've read any French werewolf lore, but they have some, and it's yep. good. Yep. And yeah, I very much appreciate I saw. I thought the reference was also vaguely heraldistic. Yep. It was very much looks like a backward-facing werewolf lion rampant for lack of a better word. I mean, that's the that's a classic symbol of England. It's the pose, the 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 way the uh, the way the wolf is posed is kind of de done deliberately to look like it. And it's a very medievalist tactic. The way the tail curls, the way the head turns, the cock, uh, the legs, it's all very, very medievalistic style. Yep. And that I think, again, sets the tone for the book. It's like, it's just another like, hey, this is the beat that you're going to get. And then they Ron Spencer it the very next page. They're like, you know what? We've set the tone and then we're going to make you realize this is still a werewolf, the apocalypse book with a Ron Spencer piece where it's just like, here's a couple of rave ravaging werewolves attacking one another and blood and guts going everywhere, which is great. Like that's, I, that's werewolf. <laughs> yes. That's werewolf. You immediately flip the page and it's like, yep, there's my werewolf on werewolf ultra violence. I, I'm right at home. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. It then gives us this intro story, which is fine. I'm critical-ish of White Wolf's fiction. Generally, it's not amazing. This is fine. Like, I, it sets a scene. It's in Krakow. It's interesting, but I don't know. It didn't, like, it. there's nothing here that I'm like, this is, you need to read this. I just think, eh, read it. I know. It, it, as intro fiction goes, it's like, okay, it's in the scene. It's in the story. It's like, uh, yeah. It's a standard Shadow Lord plot put together by an Arun, so it wasn't that brilliant. Right. Um, there was some werewolf on werewolf ultraviolence, and there was a little bit of intertribal plotting. And it, it's just, it prominently features my one huge gripe with this whole book, but I'm going to try and save that rant for later. Okay. It's probably going to come out sooner, but I'm going to try and save that rant for later. Fair enough. Um, it does at least feature a Korax, which I thought was helpful, like just as a, like a note to be like, yes, the werewolves are the main focus of this book, but there are references to some of the other pharaoh that will come up. And I, I like that in that it reminds you that werewolf is not just a game about the werewolves. It is about their interaction with the rest of their world, including the other pharaoh of Europe. And I like that they just, head nod to that at least in this story yeah i mean they don't have the space to really cover the pharaoh and we'll get to that in a minute mm -hmm. but it's but yeah the head nod towards the corax and then the corax shows up in an appropriate place in the story right yep it it fits and again story's okay it sets the scene for the rest of the book in a way that's okay 
it does the the trope of the shadow lords in a way that i get kind of annoyed with because i don't think the shadow lords would actually act in the way that the stories always represent them being like that just doesn't seem smart and the shadow lords are supposed to be smart and that said it's fine so let's move yeah, on it's from fine. That. It, it, you could skip it and you wouldn't miss anything yep but that brings us into the introduction itself so jim what are your thoughts about the intro itself I really, in, as, a, as an intro chapter, it really did a good job of setting the theme and mood right out of the gate. I love the chapter title, um, and I pulled a quote out of it, and it really sums up the, the theme of this book really well. The quote being, so, this is a time when werewolves can simply be what they are. Warriors, poets, and protectors of Gaia in an age where savagery and chivalry distinguish the rulers from the ruled and the living from the dead. It's like, I read that and it just jumped out at me. I'm like, yep, that's the quote, which sums up the book. Yep. Yep. So um, there's setting as a medievalist, I'm looking over the setting facts and I'm like, the setting facts are good. They don't do a really great job of establishing when this book is. Not and, in this chunk. They sort of say, time. like, at the end of the 13th century, right? It's like... Actually, it's the... Yeah, it's the... No, it's not the end of the 13th century. It's the oh, okay. end of the 12th. Okay. 1197 is... It's the the default year for mm. uh, Vampire of the Dark Ages, since they're trying to make a crossover. They, they would set it in the same year. But I actually tend to think that the vagueness is a strength, not a weakness. You can use this, the material of this book to run a werewolf game set anywhere before the Renaissance, anywhere sure. between the fall of Rome and the Renaissance, you could use this book. Right. The it, good thing about Garou culture is it's pretty, not, I don't want to say stagnant, that's not the right word, but it's pretty confined in this era for a long time, for several hundred years. Not much changes in their consistent. society. It's consistent. There we go. That's a better word. But yeah, it, it's probably, it's, it's consistent. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, a lot of the tribes are taking their cultural impressions because a lot of these tribes, they kind of have a impression of a given culture that they absorbed because of through their kinfolk connections that kind of sets the tribal culture the way it is. Mm -hmm. The Fenrir, the Fianna, the, Sh the Shadow Lords, the Silverfangs, they're all getting their cultural impressions set in this time. And those cultural impressions stick from there on out. Which there's some interesting stuff there that I actually want to, we'll, we'll talk more about in the chapters when we go into the tribes. But there is a hint here that the tribes are actually af actively choosing their kinfolk at, in this era, which is an interesting choice. From a actually producing more werewolf standpoint, they should already have their kinfolk kind of set. Like that's how genetics we think but they're hinting at that that it's an active process and that there's an interesting question i have about cosmology and like garu maybe having to do something with spirits to actually activate their kinfolk like it's an unsaid story hook potentially there well i mean if you think about it it any children between a werewolf and a human are kinfolk mm -hmm. so you have to pick if you're going to mate outside of the kinfolk lines you're not guaranteeing you're guaranteeing your children are not going to be guru not this generation right but 
as far away as the apocalypse is in this book, they can afford that kind of choosing. They can afford that kind of luxury of time. They can enfold new lines of kinfolk. They can actually expand their base of their base of family, which to breed from. And I think that's exactly what they're doing because there are more werewolves here than there ever will be again. Right. This is kind of the high watermark for Guru. They're not yeah. going to ever be as abundant as they are right now. So yep. you're right. And it's, uh, while I usually kind of roll my eyes about the breeding elements of werewolf, there is something interesting about the idea of effectively creating these kinfolk lineages that is very medievalist. And like, if you're looking at it from like the royalty being concerned about their lineage perspective, it's not inappropriate for this setting to have some thought process going on there. So while I'm usually like, leave all of that out of my games, in this case, I can at least see why it makes sense. And that's at least intriguing from a story hook standpoint. Right. What I wish that this book would do, and what I wish that every other book in the medieval would do, is do a better job of emphasizing that the nobility and the clergy are a tiny slice of the population. Yep. They are the 1%. Yep. They're just the 1% we know about. You... Me and almost everyone listening to this podcast is a descendant of a medieval peasant. Right. 99%, we estimate about 90% of everyone who lived in the medieval was a peasant. So the myopic focus on the clergy and the nobility, I know why it's caused, because they're the ones we have records about. Right. They're the ones we that are they have written things about. That's why they show up so vividly and vibrantly in pieces that depict the period. Because we know about the nobles and we know about the clergy. We only know about the peasants from what the nobles and the clergy chose to write about them. Right. So we're missing huge chunks of peasant culture. We know a we know a lot about their methods from arche, from practical archaeology, but we don't know about the kind of songs they sung, the kind of games they played, the kind of lifestyle that they lived aside from it was really, really close to the land. Yeah. But that's really hard to portray a character when you don't know where they come from. Right. But what I always tell my players is every one of your concepts should be built with dirt on your feet. Yep. Absolutely. Like I, it's okay to have one player be a like clergy member or be a member of the nobility, but for werewolves in particular, most of them aren't going to be those people because it would be really dangerous to be a member of a noble family, uh, like human noble family, and be a werewolf. Like, that's dangerous. You are going to get caught by somebody. I'm going to get I'm gonna get to that when we get later in the book, but agree 100%, and this is coming from the guy who played that character. <laughs> For sure. I figured your silver fangs are usually those types of folks but at least for the silver fangs it sort of makes sense right right um i did appreciate that they point out that everyone lives in tightly knit villages where it's easy to infiltrate werewolves into their family i love the idea of bonds being ringed by villages of kinfolk yep it's like oh please that makes total sense or Let's even do that. having the cairn actually be like really near the village like way nearer than most of us in the modern era would think a cairn would be like it's not it's not strange to think there is a forest 
with a cairn and right on the edge of the forest is a village. That's if you've been to Europe, Germany is like that. There are little, literally like forest village. And then people are like, just edge around that forest with all of their farms and stuff. Like that's the way things would work in this era. And it fits. All right. Uh, the literature review on page 14 is pretty solid. Um, I think it's okay. Like the, I mean, it's like, you know, you're a medievalist when you can go through the list and be like, read that, read that, read that, own that. And um, as for the fiction, yeah, you really, the CAD file is, CAD file is really good if you want to understand how a medieval monk lives. Mm -hmm. But, and the TV, the, the name of the rose is absolutely top notch. There's one thing in there that I want to pull out and I want to tell you not to watch it. Do not watch Braveheart. It is a great movie. It's terrible medieval history. Absolutely atrocious. Like terrible. I, I I can't talk about this movie without getting on a rant. So I'm going to get on a rant. You and I are both galleries. You understand this. Yep. Prima Noctis never happened. It was yep. French bourgeoisie propaganda. Never happened. Um, we don't know why William Wallace fought against the English. The Murren story is a is a legend. Um. We don't know much about Wallace, period, before he shows up on the scene. Um, the battle in the middle, that battle is called the Battle of Sterling Bridge. Do you the remember bridge. seeing there? There's no bridge in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's in the, if you look at IMDb's talk about it, the Scots who were watching them film this on the field next to it were like, why aren't you using the bridge? And they said, because it gets in the way. And the Scots comment was the English town found it the true too. Yeah, exactly. Um, kilts, not a thing yet. Bagpipes, not a thing yet. But I'll forgive them for it because it gave me outlawed tunes on outlawed pipes, which if you're a Celtic if you've got Celtic blood in you anywhere and it doesn't stir your soul listening to that. Ugh. The scenes with Wallace and the English princess would be really hard. Because she hasn't married Edward II yet. That doesn't happen until Edward II is actually king. And she, we have no evidence whatsoever that they would ever have encountered each other. Whatsoever. Aside from giving Mel Gibson a freaking love plot at the end of the movie. The only thing historically accurate about that entire movie is the end. Because that absolutely happened to William Wallace. And it's more or less exactly as they depict it. Yep. Don't what, watch that movie. <laughs> one other layer I want to throw in. William Wallace was a reaver, which means he was not a, a Highland Scot. He was a borderer. And it, it, depicting him as a Highland Scot is really problematic from a Scottish history standpoint. Like, what was happening there? Well, I'll tell you what's happening. William Wallace was turning the Scots, or say Mel Gibson was turning the Scots into Americans. And he was getting us all on board. It's a great movie from a movie perspective. Yep. Terrible medieval history. Absolutely. But if you want a werewolf movie, watch 13th Warrior. Yes. That is a pack of Fenrir and their kinfolk led by a silver fangaroon taking their new buddy, Ahmed Ibn Fadalan, the silent strider galliard, off on a Viking trip as we go burn out a wormhole. And you cannot tell me otherwise. You're 100% right. Thirteenth Warrior is one of the best movies. Period. It, it's fun. It is so much fun. It is one of the few movies that is better than the book 
because the book it was based on was utterly terrible. But yeah, it was. Well, somebody dared amazing. Michael Crichton, I believe, to rewrite Beowulf in such a way we won't recognize it. Yep. You didn't have to write it like you were an actual monk. <laughs> that was the thing that got me. Like, the first time I read it, I was like, okay, this is about the 13th worry. And I'm like, is this actual medieval history? Like, and I'm a, I'm a person that reads like that for fun. And I was like, this is hard. This is not enjoyable. And then I realized he did it intentionally. And I'm like, what is wrong with you, Crichton? Why? Ugh. Yeah. But the movie is fantastic. I write werewolf watching that movie all the time. It's one of those movies I can just, I just throw on in the background and just have it on. I know I, I watched it at least once preparing for this podcast. It's great stuff. I highly recommend it. You want the theme and mood of werewolf in the dark ages? That movie's got it. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of lot more like modern um, media that people could latch on to. Um, I'm thinking um, Vikings is fine. It is bad history, but fine bad for history. inspiration. It is bad history. Yeah, terrible history. But um, uh, The Lost Kingdom is the one I'm thinking of. Decent history and uh, I think good like inspiration for. I have to like, give you a nod. I have to give a nod to Kingdom of Heaven. Okay. Not bad on the history. Yep. Not terrible on the history, actually. Mm -hmm. True. They got the Leper King right. They got the their portrayal of the Arab world is not is is both accurate and sensitive. Yep. And they did a good job with the Saladin is right. Mm -hmm. They got a lot of things right in that movie. That's it's, true. Uh, I'm real. It's it's. I, I had to give a nod to it. Um, everything except the main character fits. Mm -hmm. So um, so there's good media out there for people. There's Go good and media find out it. there. There's plenty. Yeah. You, the medieval times are portrayed frequently throughout, and there are good and bad and different, and it depends on how much you like your historical inaccuracies. Right. I should probably have a historical inaccuracies jar that's fuller of money than my swear jar. <laughs> as long as you're not running your games as Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you're going to be fine. Course. So don't use Monty that Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a great movie, but don't run your games based on it. Right. All right, let's move on. We've talked about the introduction. We've talked about some inspirational media. Let's talk about chapter one, The Dark Wilds, which is a good name. Like, it's a really good a chapter great... title. They did a really good, good, good job. Page 16 is my absolute favorite piece of art in this entire book. Mm -hmm. That's the chapter facing art. But it also kind of encapsulates everything I think that's wrong with this book. Okay. It's a scene of a lord overlooking their fife. Most likely it's either a Silverfanger or Shadow Lord, Clave in hand, their master of all they survey. They're probably one of my Silverfang's ancestors. Sure. But the complacency in this scene is palpable. It's like that guru doesn't have a care in the world. He's secure. His fief is under his control. The mortals are, are in their place. The wild is safe. There's no worm to be sighted within a thousand. Shouldn't you be planning an assault on a worm hive or something? Right. But this is what the thing. What are you doing? In this era, the Garu have a lot of time where they're kind of like, meh. Like, I'm just living my life, doing my thing. And like, that's why things get so bad for the Garu down the road because they have 200 or 300 years at least of complacency like this. Exactly. This is my one gripe about this entire book does not give the player characters something to do right there is it's like there's no urgency there's no reason to act in werewolf the apocalypse the world is ending 
and you have to do something about it. You're it's there. I like it because it has a purpose Mm -hmm. because you always have something to do in this. You don't have anything to do. Yeah. There's even the worm beasts that are sort of threatening you are like, "Mm, no, we'll just go and take care of those worm creatures. No big deal. And they've, take that tone through the book several times like eh no big deal we'll just take go take care of those like yeah, it's, it's, it's like you you what are you doing right what are you doing right combat the worm where it dwells and where it breeds but this is an era where for the garu nation there's no there's no oh like the black spiral dancers are not a powerful foe yet the well, worm yeah. as like an over encompassing like constant presence isn't there there's so much like natural world still that the worm is just like we'll battle it when we de- when we feel like it and it from a storytelling standpoint that's the only thing that i'm feel like this book is lacking is like not giving me enough hooks to actually go this is a game for these players to run yeah i have i have to make up the work for the players this book doesn't provide it this is my one huge gripe against this book. Is it, I mean, once upon a time when they had conventions still, we're still in the age of COVID and we miss those. Um, once upon a time, I used to run panels at these conventions on how to run a better role-playing game. And one of the points from my panels is we are not the player character's boss. We can't tell them what to do, mm-hmm. but we are their employer. Right. It is our job to provide them something to do. This book does not help me provide you with something to do. It's a beautiful setting. It gives me a great place. It's very evocative of the right time and place. Gives me the theme, gives me the mood, gives me the setting, gives me the scenery. Doesn't give me anything going on. Yep. One advantage, and I'll leap forward in time a little bit. There is another one of these books that comes out in a couple of years in our timeline. And it does a little bit of a better job of setting a, here are some like uh, events and moments in time, but even it is missing some of like, there needs to be something going on in the world of the nation to drive your characters, which is something we wanted to do with our version of Werewolf Dark Ages. And something I think when we get to will be really, really strong because we've created a, a hook for stories to live on and then build right. them. So. Yeah, because we had not one, but two big events going on in the nation that you can get involved in right freaking now. Yep. That and are that with from the vampire perspective, that what is what makes Vampire the Dark Ages. There are these moments in vampire history that are really important that are happening that you need to make decisions about. You need the same thing for werewolf. Yeah. And that the the next edition, Dark Ages Werewolf, and I hope that they'll be able to come back and talk about that one because I really love that book too. Um, Dark Ages Werewolf does a better job of this in the next edition. Yep. And sometimes I'll refer to in the next edition, they fix some of these things. This is something they fix somewhat in the next edition, but I think that our the way we addressed it is much better. And, the, and we'll get to that though. Yeah, we'll get to that. So, so this chapter is an overview chapter of the world of the Garu in the medieval era. You get some information just generally at the beginning about the Garu nation, 
and some of the other pharaoh that are out there, particularly they spend a lot of word count mentioning the Kelican, but not giving me any reason to use the Kelican because they're already dying out. They're already kind of like on the edge of like, they don't want to interact with the Garu. So, and the Garu don't want to interact with them. So why would I use them? Uh, I don't know. I struggle to figure out like, what is the purpose of the Kelican in this book? But I know right. that they would be present. So I'm glad that they at least mentioned them. Yeah. I mean, the the treatment they give the Pharaoh is like, yeah, they're here, but they don't want to talk to the Guru. Right. There's like the Korax are the only ones to talk to the Guru. And they've always been the only ones to talk to the Guru. It's easy to integrate a Korax. I generally don't want to because not every one of them plays a Korax like the Korax in our game tomorrow. Right. Um, and... I use them like I would use Silent Striders, but if I can use Korax like Silent Strider, why wouldn't I just use a Silent Strider? That's absolutely fair. And if there's more interesting story hooks to pull a Silent Strider in than a Korax, potentially. There's more cultural like reasons the Korax are in a couple of the uh, involved with some of the tribes. But yeah, I'm I'm with yeah. you. Like, like I don't like, want to overuse them. And okay, so Korax, we can use them, but why would we? Right, Garal. There's like three of them awake in Europe at the moment. And they're hiding from the Garu because they're like, we don't want to be destroyed. As far as the Garu are concerned, they are destroyed. Right. So why are we going to, we're not going to correct their prison. So the Garu are not going to interact with the Garu. Um, there are very few big cats left in Europe. The European lion is extinct. Right. And so there's nothing for the silicon to breed with that's why they're going nuts right is they've lost their wolf population their, their equivalent of a wolf population and the other big cats are at the edges of what would be the the setting for this book like the uh north african region and like has cats that the bass that are connected with but again most of them are gonna like gonna be outside of the scope for most people in a dark ages game like that's fair but yeah. it's just a shame and then there's the rat kit. They're right. perfectly in sync with the medieval setting. They would, they're the only pharaoh I would consider using, but I would consider but, using them as villains. Right. Because the rat kit in this era are, we don't want anything to do with the werewolves because we're terrified of them. We don't want them to know there are so many of us that there are. And they don't, there's no good reason for them to work with the werewolves. So you're right. You've got to either use them as villains and then you're perpetrating the whole, the ratkin or villains kind of story, which is an issue. Um, but it is what it is like, and there you've got the Farah, and I struggle to figure out what I'm going to do with them in the Sarah. It's like, it's, I almost consider the word count they spent on the Farah like wasted. Yeah. Because, this isn't their setting. Yep. This is the stronghold of the Guru. This is the I, last place you want to find a fair. Right. I would actually have been happy. Usually I'm like, oh, give me like these things that are they're helpful, but give me these in like two paragraphs each and then don't mention them again. I would have been like, all right, legit. Like this is the werewolf story. That it is really is fine. So back to the werewolf story. The section on the Guru Nation, and I put nation in quotations because it really isn't at this time, right? right. Um, build a sense of complacency. The tribes don't feel the need to coordinate or cooperate. Intertribal septs are rare. Moon bridges are almost non-existent. 
it serves the theme, but it doesn't help my games. Right. Because I promise you, even unless I pitch an all one tribe game, the players are going to want to play a multi-tribal pack. Right. And I have to work to make that happen. You got to work hard in this setting to make that happen. Like there are so few places in the world that five tribes of werewolves would interact with one another enough to, to, to exist even. Right. The closest you can get to that is Great Britain, where we can in- interact with, where you can plausibly have Silver Fangs, Fianna, and Fenrir all in the same place. And the Bonars and, and the Warders. of smattering of something like Children of Gaia or Bonars or Warders. Mm-hmm. You could, yeah, you could get that to work in Great Britain. Maybe in France, but you could, if you go close to urban, you get a benefit because you get to add the children of Gaia, you get to add the warriors of men, and you get to add the bonars. And by the way, for listeners, the warriors of men are the proto glass walkers, so that's their like term in this era. So, yeah, they're they're they haven't built the skyscraper high enough yet. Right. They're not yet the Iron Riders. They're not yet the Glasswalkers. They're just the, we hang out with people tribe. So. Which is what they've always been. (laughs) Yeah, which is fine. But that said, there is a section on here on Italy and the warders. And I think it's interesting, but they don't give me enough. Like I want more uh, story there. Like there's, there's actually a deep story there that they just kind of leave alone. And it's sad because there's something. Like, that would be really cool. Let's put a note in that and fix that when we write it next time. Right. Absolutely. Um, um, I can understand the appeal of a Hamid Guru of completely giving up the peasant life and going wild. Yep. Being a peasant sucked. Yep. Being a raging Hamid, Hamid who's proto-werewolf, your life is going to suck even more because you'll very easily piss, tick somebody off, end up in the stocks, and then you're the laughing stock of the village for weeks and months after public humiliation as a punishment was very effective because you're the rumor mill for the next couple weeks people's lives are full of tedium you're the only bit of excitement to talk about is how you ended up in the stocks yeah that's a notoriety that nobody wants right and that's why Hamid guru i can see completely giving up the human life very quickly um and the I, think, I think that's interesting. Sorry, I want to dig into that just for a second. We're yeah, go going. For it. We're already way over t- time. But anyway, um, we're going to be way over our time. You and I love to talk. <laughs> there is a story there in that, like, the Hamid just go off and live in the nation. So there should be like these cairns that exist in this time are really like your community, like way more even than the modern era, and that's mm-hmm. fine. But then you're really disconnected from humanity and. That is an interesting like balance to have. Like, how do you like you would have villages that are just Garu villages? They would they're kinfolk and the werewolves that live there. Like that would be more common, I think, than these places where only a couple of people in town know that werewolves exist. I would see more villages where like this is a werewolf town or werewolf village. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely how it's gonna be. And I think that that's how you with your planning a story the village nearby should be loaded with kin kin because you're going to have like 70 80 90 percent of the population be kinfolk and you want it that way because this is your safe haven right this is where you're going to find your mates this is where you're going to find your 
Um, this is where your children are going to be raised and you're living closer to them. You're not living in the kind of broken homes that guru grow up in, in the modern era. Yeah. Not at all. Those don't exist. They don't because you and your mates live in the village that's on the bond and they're you're the tribe is a family. Yep. The family is and family has always been a big theme in werewolf that I like. And this does a really good job of explaining why this is. This time period is ideal for the guru kin relations. I mean, this is a time period where everybody knows their place. So kinfolk are going to be more socialized to accept their role and be content in it. And the werewolves aren't going to treat them like dirt because they're the only humans whom we can be ourselves with. And these are your community members. And community is such an important thing in the medieval era. Like it is, it is everything. Like really, the the people you live around are the people you're generally only ever going to see, except for some wanderers. And maybe if you're a traveler, like, but generally you're going to stay within 30 miles of where you grew up. And that's your life. That's your existence. That's okay. But that's like community is important. You're not going to have those broken communities like you do in the modern era for werewolves. Right. Right. Your family stays close. You live right next, you live right where you work. You work not far from where you live. The fields are, you walk out of your door, you go out to the fields, you go work a day, you come home, you drink some homebrew beer, and you call it a day. Yep. That's the life of the average medieval peasant. And it's the life of the guru and their their kin. Yep. Except that the guru occasionally change forms and go into the wilderness and hunt you some fresh venison every now and again. Right. And maybe like some monster shows up and they go kill it too. Like, right. again, like your life as a werewolf in this era is tedium because life in this era is tedium. So I don't know. Uh, I struggle was- with that, but it otherwise is okay. Yeah, I mean, and then you the it's much better time to be lupus than any other time ever, mm-hmm. because the lupus, in my opinion, should be even more numerous. They they estimate them like thirty percent of the werewolf population. I think it should be more like sixty percent, probably more. Yeah, there are way more wolves. Way more wolves. Way way more wolves. So much broad wilderness that has never known the touch of man. Why are the red talons flipping out? There's plenty of space where man is nowhere near. Right. Go there and be yourselves. There's no. That said, I like the thing that there's a red talon prophecy that some bad stuff's going to happen. We need to like think about it now. So there's a story hook there, but it's underutilized in this book. Like, right. That needs to be better in the next edition. Yes. It's going to come up much better in the next edition. Um, even with laws on the books, almost everywhere offering pelts on wolf skins, it's going to be better life to be a wolfus guru than any other time. Yep. I love the sidebar on the delirium. Yes. The people are much more likely. Yeah. The delirium is not going to work like it does in the modern world. The delirium, you're going to react crazy, just like it always has been. But the difference is people are not going to write it off. They're going to believe what they saw. Yeah, there's no reason they don't need to. They can believe that a werewolf exists and people are going to go, yeah, you're right. Werewolves exist. Yeah, you're right. Werewolves exist. You did the exact right thing by running the other way. Right. And yeah, so the delirium should work differently in this era because 
werewolves aren't superstition and this time they're fact yep yep um it, and then there's the bit on you, metis yeah i just i was gonna move on to that myself so yeah let's 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 talk about the metis for a second so I've never never ever liked the metis i mean i'm the the, the, the personal it's just i think this is this is what brings breeding into every werewolf game. Yeah, this is a problematic thing with them to begin with because they're supposedly a sin and all of that sort of problematic elements and then disability and so forth. There's just, You dig yourself a, 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 oh, a, man. a, a deep grave very quickly. Um, even worse, in the medieval era, leaving children to die for, by exposure was not uncommon. No, particularly if they're born deformed. Right. And... That's, are born to form. It, so that's the thing that happens a lot in this era and you need to be aware of it. And if that makes you uncomfortable, you either don't tackle it in the game or decide to tackle it in a way that makes you comfortable, but it's a thing. And they're going to be very rare as player character options in this era. Um, I have, I've straight up told my player characters, give me a real, real good reason why you were allowed to live. Right. Not even the, I mean, the children won't kill you, but they're the only ones. Right. Maybe the Black Furies. Maybe. Sometimes, but rarely. Sometimes. Yeah. But no. Yeah. You will not be allowed to continue. You're not going to live past being an infant. And why? There's plenty of healthy breeding guru still around this isn't the end times we don't need every man we can get so yeah uh, from, I mean, it's, from uh, it's, this is all the bad stuff of the garu like right here but yeah you're right like all that's true so there aren't going to be a lot of menace and right and that's what and that's why i say give me a real real good reason why you were allowed to live as a menace and be aware that this is going to be a constant problem for your character like it always is so uh, I generally don't have medicine in my games for a number of reasons. And this is, they're all illuminated here. Um, I want to talk about the art piece briefly on 21. Okay. I'm like, it's a striking scene, but I don't know what's going on. Are you exposing the child? Are you saving the child? Yeah. What are you doing? It's, it's unclear. I, I am hoping that this is a parent saving their child but it's it is unclear and i don't like that yeah, yeah. I, it's like come on give me give me a clear answer one way or the other with this stuff yep this um i want to jump kind of like move a little bit further ahead there's a lot in this section this there's is a lot in this section a good chunk of information on um location specific stuff like you start getting information on specifically the british isles here and they spend a lot of time on that, on the British Isles. Way too much yes. time. And it's okay if that is your default setting, then they should not call this Dark Ages Werewolf. They should call this Werewolf the British Isles, which would be fine. But, but... This is supposedly covering all of Europe, at least, you should give us the same weight for all of Europe as you are for Britain, which is small oh. in the grand scheme of things. Okay, yeah. I mean, the, the this is an issue that just appears in the medieval literature. And this is true 
no matter how you slice the research. Um, if you're writing, you're reading an English language medieval source, odds are pretty good. It's going to give you a lot of information on medieval England. Mm-hmm. The same is true of German sources talking about the Holy Roman Empire, French sources talking about France. You're going to get a lot more in Spanish sources about the Reconquista. But the thing is, this is a thing we could have remedied with more research. Yep. Because translations of these things exist. And were very common in this, in 1999 as well. Like 1999. They were just as common in the 99 as they were any other time. Yep. I mean, I don't have a problem with the amount of space and real estate they gave to the British Isles. I have a problem that they didn't give the same amount of space and real estate to everything else. Right. Because the way they did Britain was top notch. It's like you gave me setting, you gave me NPCs, you gave me cairns, you gave me places of power, you told me what the power struggles, the politics, and the everything that's going on there. I'm like, okay, this is a rich and flavorful setting, and I can easily plunk some of my players into this mess and point them in a direction and do something with it. Why didn't you do this with the rest of Europe? Yep, yep. It's amazing. This is a great section on the British Isles, and I agree with you. If I'm going to run a game in there, I have everything I need, but if I want to run a game in Poland, which you hinted at earlier, would be a setting here, you don't give me enough to run a game in Poland. Except for the fact that the Poland is where the where the old king and seneschal relationship between the Silver Fang and the Shadow Lords is actually still a thing, right. and actually still works. And that's like... That's cool. What? Right? That's right. like cool. I'm like, that would be cool. I mean, that would I want to run a game there with you co-GMing or something like that, because you're the Shadow Lord guy and the Silverfang guy. And it's like we could run this and we could make a real interesting series of interconnected and interwoven plots mm. in Poland, but not with the material you've given me here. Right, right. If I want to run a game, uh, I'm just thinking uh, in, in Transylvania, right? It, right. He has We have an entire book, Transylvania by Night, sure, but it is a vampire book, and it is very squarely a vampire book. If you want to give me a book that I can use for werewolves in that same setting, you need to give me three pages on Transylvania, please, because it actually would be useful for me because I want to run a crossover werewolf and vampire game in the big setting for, like, this era, like, Come right. on. Right. Why didn't they do that? Right. That, that was one of the, that's just a bit of wasted potential in this book. Yep. Is And when we get to the crossover rules, we'll explain why that's a bit of wasted wasted potential in this book. But seriously, um, that said, the sidebar on page 28 is, is pretty much required reading. It yes. summarizes three pillars. And I didn't mention this back in the lit review and I should. If you're going to run a game in this era, you need three pillars. Which is a vampire book for folks that aren't aware. Excellent. It's mostly history, but it's very, very useful for actually understanding the era. Yeah, it really is. It will tell you how the medieval society functioned. And 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 then how it links to vampire, which then how it links to werewolf, which is useful. Yeah, it's still. But the sidebar in 28 pretty well covers how the basic unit of the feudal system works. And that's something you should read and understand because you grew up, your characters grew up in a manor and either in the manor house, in the manor church, or more likely than not 
in one of the villages in the manor. So you need to understand that because that's where you came from. Yep. Okay. I want to jump to the next chapter, but yep. is there anything else big that you want to briefly mention about chapter one, which for me is my favorite chapter, but I think we've covered like the highs and lows. Okay. There's one, th I don't think they figured it out and I don't think they had it really clearly in here. Um, there's brief discussion of the BSDs here. There's better discussion of the BSDs in the, um, in the um, uh, antagonist section. That's what I'm going for. Yep. And I really want to know, it's like, is this fall a recent thing? Was this the fall in the Viking age? Was it because later on, I think we get it established pretty firmly that they fell before the end of Roman Britain. Right. Which would mean that this isn't a recent thing. They've been under the worm's claw for about a thousand years. Why are you treating it like this has happened yesterday? Yeah. But then also kind of just ignoring that an entire tribe disappeared because the Black Spiral Dancers are very non-known by most of the nation at this stage, but the White Howlers disappeared. Like, that should be a that thing. Be a big deal. Right. Um, if it's a thousand years, okay, maybe not as big of a deal, but if it's recent, like it's sort of mentioned in this book, you'd think the Fianna or the Silver Fangs would be like, let's go look for these folks. Right. I've written that adventure. At least in an outline, uh, at least in an outline form, I've written that adventure and I was I was running it. And when you and I fix the uh, W20 version of this, it's on the slate of books that's being written. Sure. Because we need to have the story of, hey, what happened to the White Howlers? Yeah. We ain't heard from them in a very long time. And I get, and I like, think that that should happen in the Viking era. Yeah, I agreed. So then we're. 700s is the era that I would set it as well. That's what I was going to say yeah. before. So I 100% agree with you. Yeah, it's like, I think we should write that book as a big adventure supplement for Werewolf the Viking Age. Yep. We're going to write Werewolf the Viking Age almost immediately after we finish writing Werewolf the Dark Ages, right? Jim, stop adding books to the list. But yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, the only other issue I have with chapter one is the Muslim world got very little attention in yeah. this piece. Almost none, which is... It's disappointing. Disappointing Severely and disappointing. ridiculous. There was so much information about the Muslim world at this in this era that would be really interesting. And there are werewolves there. There are at least four tribes, five tribes of werewolves. Four or five tribes of werewolves that play with the Muslims. Right. It's like, seriously, Housewives Heart of the Silver Fangs, the Silent Striders as a whole, the Children of Gaia, the Bonars and the Warders are all up in the in the Muslim world. The Black Their Furies history. would be there. They are the Furies would be there. It's, it's like, why didn't you do this? It's like I, I, I get it. North Africa doesn't have a native wolf population. Maybe you don't, but it's like seriously, some of our best resources on the medieval world come from the Islamic sources. Yeah. Why didn't you use this material? And it's a shame because, like, it would be so interesting to play werewolf in that world. And there are tribes, as we just mentioned, that have strong presences in that world. Like, please give me something. Like, I would just, I want an extra book that is, like, uh, werewolf in uh, the Middle East. Like, please. 
Josh, didn't you just tell me to stop adding books to the list? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Look what we just did. We've just made another book we now have to put to the list. <laughs> hey, we're gainfully employed with lots of collaboration projects for the future. Right. Let's, All right, so let's move on to the tribes. Yeah, let's talk about the tribes. So I want, there's lots of information on the tribes. I want to condense this to a small section. I know it's going to be hard. Where I want to say, let's talk about our two favorite and our one least favorite tribes and go from there. So, All right, I can do that. <laughs> start with your two favorites. Oh, well, that's just terribly difficult. Oh, let's say the Silver Fangs. <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> Big surprise. Um, yeah, I'm a Silver Fang fanboy, and this is the Silver Fangs era. Yep. If, if Guru are taking cultural impressions from the culture of a given location or time or peoples this is when the sealing wax that is the silver fang tribe is hot melted and absorbing the feel of the european nobility they're absorbing the nobles cultures the nobles traditions the nobles way of doing things the nobles ideals and values and Silver Fangs, I'm sorry, they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. Everywhere there's nobles, you have Silver Fangs interbreeding with them. So they're not, the book doesn't do a very good job of expressing this, but they are everywhere. Yep. They are, there's Silver Fangs in Great Britain, houses austere Howland, White, and uh, Winter Snow. You've got houses in France, Gleaming Eye, Unbreakable Hearth. You've got houses in Spain. That would be the Unbreakable Hearth and Wise Heart. You've got houses in the Holy Roman Empire, Gleaming Eye again, and then Winter Snow. Winter Snow's up in Denmark and Saxony and in Norway and Scandinavia. You've got the Conquering Claw in Italy along with some more of Unbreakable Hearth. You've got the only spot that isn't on the map that's part that's absorbed by the Silver Fang nobility is that chunk of Shadow Lords in the middle of the map. And then you've got on the other side, oh, wait, the bastion of Silver Fang strength, Russia, right, right? where Clan Crescent Moon is the strongest house of the time. But yeah, you've got literally Silver Fangs all over the map. So I can put a Silver Fang in any chronicle and it makes sense because they're there. They're everywhere. Um, this is the high water mark for the tribe. The other tribes write-ups all acknowledge the strength and power of the silver fangs at this time they've got the best dirt they have the best kinfolk they have the best of everything and they are not shy about proving it and proving why they deserve it so this is why i love playing silver fang in this time more than any other almost all my dark ages characters have been from this tribe and this is their time in a very real way this is their time so that's my top one. Where's yours? I think my top one is the Fianna because of similar reasons, but it's also different. The Fianna are going to be found in two places, Ireland and some of France and maybe a little bit of Scotland and, and some of Wales and maybe in Spain. This is the thing. The Fianna, like the Celtic peoples, have all these little, like almost they seemingly random connections to places. And you're like, okay, so I could put this tribe in all of these places and have them be there. But their home of Ireland is such a good place for storytelling for that tribe. It's tough to expand it to a multi-tribal like pack, but if you want to run a Fianna game, this is the era to run a Fianna game. They have their own king. Their own, their king 
is actually a powerhouse. Their king is actually connected to the Fae, the changelings, in a way that makes sense and isn't odd as it is in the modern era. That's just kind of this weird connection that, okay, you're you know, talking about like these ancient connections. Now is the era that those connections actually matter. And there's a lot of like hooks there. The Kelican are actually here in Ireland. You could actually bring them in. Like Ireland is a good setting for this era. The Fianna make that better, but you'd really have to focus it to be like, this is a Fianna game. And I'm okay with that. You could maybe, again, you could maybe pull in the Fenrir and you could pull in the Silver Fangs. You could pull in the bon Bonars, the Warders of Men. You could do all that, but you could make a straight Fianna game in this era and it would make a ton of sense and it would be a ton of fun. So mm -hmm. Fianna are my, are my top of the tribes. And for good reason. That would have been that would have been my number three choice. And that's the tribe that you and I are most likely lineally descended from, if right. you had to pick it. Right. So um, Who's the your other second? tribe I might be lineally descended from, the Fenrir. <laughs> this, these guys are, this is their age. Mm -hmm. Their age is kind of just passed in the Viking age. They took their cultural impression from the Norse at that time, but they really, it, the, the lessons of that era really stay with the tribe and it really fits the setting. Yep. There's worm beasts over there. Let's go kill them. There's another tribe encroaching on our dirt. Let's go kill them. There's somebody over there with a cairn that isn't well defended. Let's go kill them. <laughs> it, it's th that's what the Fenrir do. Their heartlands in Holy Roman Empire and Scandinavia are great places to tell a story. Yep. Because the Black Forest, yeah, the Fenrir are the reason why the Black Forest has its reputation. The Fenrir are the reason why the Vikings were as dangerous as they were and the vikings went everywhere the vikings have pockets of kin everywhere you could have a get pop up anywhere yep. literally you and could they, have a fenrir like show up in baghdad and that would be 100 percent historically accurate and interesting no, no question yep and more to the point the fenrir also have a real strong presence in great britain mm -hmm. because they came over with the saxons right and also a presence in Ireland. You could do that, and it would make a ton of sense. Dublin yeah. is named because of the Old Norse word for Blackpool. Like Exactly. It was a Viking town. Yep. Jorvik, York, is a Viking town. Yep. They're all over the British Isles. So, yeah, the Fenrir can go anywhere and do anything in this time period, and it fits them. Yep. It's the violent age, and there's plenty for the Fenrir to fight. The best quote was right at the bottom of their speech which is of all the tribes the Fenrir are the least likely to find peace and they would have it no other way and we're going to get to this when we get to the gift section the Fenrir have the best gift in the book you just have to live to be a rank four to get it right um, okay so I'm going to cut in I absolutely agree with you about the Fenrir but I want to talk about the warders of men go for it I find them in this era to be the most interesting because you're talking about being a werewolf would automatically mean I'm going to go off into the wilderness and just live as a wolf and do my thing, maybe hang out with another pack of, of werewolves and, and do that sort of thing. Makes a lot of sense. The warriors or men are like, no, like I like being around other people. Like from a storytelling perspective, that makes them really intriguing I struggle to figure out exactly what I would 
make the reason that they hang around people be, but I think there's a lot of like story potential for someone that's like, I want to play this werewolf. It's like this trade thing's really intriguing to me. And then maybe tie that into like mages history with the sorcerer's crusade elements and the order of reason and all of that. There's lots of world of darkness hooks with the warriors of men. And I, because of that, I find them fascinating in this era. And I think that makes them like my other top tribe. If you're going to do crossover, the warders of men are your best choice. Yep. And they play. And if you want to do leech hunting, your party should have a warder of man in it. Yep. Because they're going to know they're going to have the dirt to figure it out. Right. And the warders of men have some of the best gifts in terms of actually adapting to the medieval world. So, no, I think that's a solid choice. My only gripe with the Warders of Men is that there aren't enough cities. Right. There never were going to be. Right. And their idea of a city is a joke. Right. I mean, Constantinople, sure. That's sure. a legitimate city. Rome, Rome, that's a legitimate city. Paris. Mm. Paris, kind of. Yeah. London is an overgrown town. Right. Most of these places are overgrown towns that they're hanging out in. There's not enough there's not enough cities for them. They're gonna as a tribe, they're gonna be widely dispersed but thinly spread. And that's they they might have concentrations of power, but their concentrations of power are also in the leech's backyard. Right. But again, that makes them interesting home. and a little bit like that like they're very tentatively in any sort of like power situation. Like Again, I think that's interesting. Like, here I am, this one lone warder of men in this entire area. Now I've got to go make relationships with all these other werewolves to get the things I want. Cool. You've got given me a story hook reason for you to exist and to be part of this little group of your tribe that is in this area. Mm-hmm. Jim, give me your one tribe that you're like, mm, didn't work for me in this book. What do the Red Talons have to complain about? Right. Seriously. What is your problem? You have oceans of verdant wilderness where no human has ever been. And it's not likely to be. You are not oppressed by men. You have the freedom to go be a wolf. What is your problem? Right. Now, there was a couple of interesting things in there. Um, there's something I want to explode, a, a minor rant I have. Okay. I never, in a Dark Ages book, want to see the word apes and humans conflated. Right. Never. No, it I'm was like, not a no, thing. Not a thing. Europe has no great apes. There is the person who thought up the connection between humans and apes is not going to be born for another eight centuries. And no. Find some other way for the red talons to slur the two legs. Yep. They can figure something out. Yep. Be more clever than that. Yep. I banish the I mean, if I'm writing a style guide for any future werewolf books in the dark ages, you will not mention the word apes in connection with humans ever. It bothers me. Fair. So um, there's a glimmer of hope in that the reputation the red talons are mentioned that they have a reputation of being prophets. So you can kind of work that. Their two medieval specific camps are kind of work, but really, and then there's the hooks about the red talons going way off the edges of the map. 
mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. I could explore that. Yep. But I have no reason to use the red talons in this game. Right. Because they're still beating the same old humans are bad drum that they've been beating as long as we've known them. Right. In the apocalypse era, it's like, we told you so. The red talons are like, we told you so. And you should have gone back to the Pergium. And you can kind of understand that because they have a reason to be. In this time, in this place, go back to the 20 or so cairns you have out there in the wilderness right the garu are just not going to listen to them there's no reason to there's no reason Uh, and that makes them less interesting like there's less of a hook there to like hang on the tribe right i want to talk about the bonars so i love the bonars in any era and i think this era should be the era of the bonar like this is like peasants 90 percent of the population Bonar should be everywhere. Here's the here's the thing that I really dislike that they did with the Bonars. I agree that there should be at least one werewolf tribe with connections to um, to particularly the Jewish people, but also the rest of the Levant and the Middle East. And I think that should be the children of Gaia. Mm-hmm. Makes that, sense. That tribe in other books has had references where it's like that. That's where some of our kinfolk come from. That fits it fits the tribe it fits like uh their mythos and everything else but in this book they connect the bonars as intentionally trying to build up kinfolk relationship with uh, europe's jewish populations and the reason i have a problem with that is they don't continue having those connections with them into the modern day and that one doesn't make sense for the way genetics works two it doesn't make sense for the way kinfolk work in werewolf why would you just abandon a whole group of kinfolk that you've cultivated? And two, it doesn't really fit the rest of the Bonar's history. So it just kind of made me go, someone thought Jewish people were scummy, is how it reads. And that bothers me. That bothers me a lot. I don't know. I don't think that was the author's intent, but that's the way it comes off. And so I'm not a fan of that. And I'm not, because of that, I'm kind of not a fan of the Bonars as much as I want to be in this era. 100% agree. 100% agree. You and I both know a lot of awesome Jewish, we have a lot of awesome Jewish friends. They're not, it's whoever thought that or connected that with the Bonars, it's like, no, they're an oppressed minority in this time period. They absolutely are. Yep. One of the things Edward the Longshanks is rightfully pilloried for is that he expelled the Jews from England. That was a thing he did. He was no better or worse to them than most other monarchs of the day. But he it's one of the things that he did that really stands out is this is just a scummy thing to do. Yep. And it's just the Jews were not well treated in Europe because of their association with they're the people who put Christ to death. Okay, fine. But you that have, but that also kind of misinterprets the fact that there were large Jewish populations in Europe in this era. And so they like were. I am fine with them existing, uh, with have them having connections to at least one of the werewolf tribes, and I think that's interesting. But again, the connection to the Bonars, to me, just like, mm, it burns me the wrong way. I'm like, connect them to the Shadow Lords, it makes sense for the Askenazim, and connect them to the Children of Gaia, makes sense to me because of some of the other things that have been written about the Children of Gaia in the past, but I don't see the Bonar connection. Just I think you me. ought to connect them to the Waters of Men, too. True. Because yeah. where are the Jewish enclaves? Right. Generally Jewish in cities. Are in, 
they're yep. generally in the cities. Yep. They're generally in the big cities and that's where they are. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so yeah, there's, there's a thing there. I'm going to say this really briefly, like there's good crossover with vampire rules here. That is a right. good thing that is in the latter part of this book. The fifth, the fifth chapter was the reason I bought this book back in the day and I still use it. The, the, the sidebar that lied and said that this was not the crossover rule. Yes, it was right. It was the crossover <laughs> rules. We've been waiting. If you're a white wolf fan, you've been waiting for these crossover rules for a long time. Here's your crossover rules. Here's how vamp- werewolves are affected by vampire disciplines. And here's how you can affect vampires with your gifts. It's there. Yep. And the, and this set the tone for every relationship between vampire and werewolf I've ever played ever since. Cause this is a feud that's older than time and you should play it as such. Yep. That every time vampires and guru appear in my guru games, somebody some st character wants me to cut a deal with the where the vampires and i'm like no we i am the galliard i can tell you there is no point in history where this has ever worked unless you're a shadow lord and they don't tell those stories (laughs) yeah that's right they keep those stories secret for a reason right because it's they'd be accused of breaking the litany yep with good reason um so yeah, there's good crossover rules in chapter five. Um, chapter four is your standard storyteller chapter, which it is a has good some, chapter. It's a good chapter. You always, I always learn something from these. Um, the art in page one twenty four is like my third favorite piece in the book. Mm-hmm. I really want to know the story behind that fight. I want to know who is he rescuing? Why are they? Why are they shooting at him? Did he get away? Right. I want to know the story behind that piece of art. Um. This book, this entire book, has been a masterful exercise in theme and mood. I don't dis- I don't agree with the theme, with, with the, the the way it's presented, the guru, but I I get it. It comes across clearly, so you sh- you have an answer for that. Um, always, always, always encourage dialogue between you and your PCs about what both people want out of the chronicle is good advice in that section. Yep. A certain ST of my acquaintance went so far as to email his players a survey about what they wanted from their game to collect their input as to what we want to do in the course of the story. And I happily obliged with like six subplots that I would love to see my character do. It's like, this is the kind of thing we can do. And you should do it. You should do it. Um, The sidebar on 133. What do you think, Josh? Are you a screen person or not a screen person? I am not a screen person. So I never have an ST screen. One, I don't like the separation between my players and I. But that said, I always fudge my roles. I this is I will I I will openly admit to it. (laughs) Yep. The point of the storyteller screen is to let me make the dice say what I want them to say. Sure. I don't want my player characters to die ignominiously. If you're going to die, you're going to die as a big damn hero right. doing what big damn heroes do. You're not going to die falling off a wall. Right. Um, the section on family life and the gender roles in the medieval, it's somewhat inaccurate. Yeah, it's not. The women, the women of the era, especially if you're a peasant woman, there's really no distinction between you and a man legally. Right. Except because there just isn't. You can do all the same things that they can do, which is to say nothing. <laughs> right. Now, if you're if you're a noble woman, there's more of a distinction 
and your your latitudes are limited your sphere of life is limited but within that limited sphere you have a hell of a lot more latitude than any man would and this section on the powerful women of the age is accurate yep. those women were powerful they were the exception not the rule right and unfortunately and in terms of how much misogyny you want in your game that's a slider you can set wherever you want i always assume the guru society is egalitarian yep same because, because like, why wouldn't you be why if wouldn't you, you be are a 10-foot raging monster gender's not gonna freaking matter not at all it doesn't and the guru have been born men and women throughout history right and if you come in with those misogynistic attitudes which you learned as a as a as a human child the nearest black fury is going to beat them out of you yep and you're going to learn real quick um i can confirm the ideas on sidebar on 137 absolutely work once you banish the cell phones and the modernisms from your speaking light some candles put on a cheese board of cheeses and meats i encourage my players if you have garb wear it it mm -hmm. helps you get in the character yep. i'll wear my i'll wear mine because it helps me get in the in the mindset the antagonist section is overall quite good, and I really appreciated the sidebar on how to use BSDs in the medieval. Sure. So I like it, but I actually don't think the antagonist section gives me the one thing I need, and that's stats. It yeah, do, it that doesn't. That was a failure. That was a failure. It, and it's fine. I understand the reason why you don't like have a lot of word count. You don't have less space for it here. If you have the core book, you've got all the stats you absolutely need, but it would be helpful for me to have some stats for some of the antagonists here. For an example, BSD in this era would be helpful. Yeah, something like that. Yep. Anything like that. Um, but yeah, you absolutely need to read the sidebar on page 138 to understand how to play the Black Spiral Dancers in this era. Yep. They don't have the numbers. They just don't. You cannot use them like cannon fodder berserking monsters. You have to play the BSDs more like vampires. Yep. And that is absolutely the way to do it. So go for that. There's some interesting stories you can do there too with that. Like playing a Black Spiral Dancer infiltrating a werewolf game, doable in this era. Doable. And Very doable. Really interesting. Particularly because I don't think uh, Scent to the Worm or uh, Sense Worm... I don't think a lot of Garu have it in this era. Why yeah, would you? Well, yeah, why would you? You're not worrying about it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to briefly touch the appendix, and then I want to go spend the rest of our time in the character creation chapter because that's and the gifts because that's more, that's important stuff. Um, the appendix, it's full of useful stuff. Yes. It doesn't fit anywhere else. Yep. The relationship between Garu and horses explains why Garu don't ride anywhere. Great. I loved that. I was like, thank you. This is actually really useful. Like, this I can really see... Cool. I can see my players being like, we get a bunch of horses. I'm like, no, you don't. You're werewolves. You're werewolves. Why would you? You're a rage monster on top of a horse. Mm -hmm. The horse is a skittish animal that is going, I don't care how well it's trained. It's going to look at you like, I've got a predator on my back. I need to get it off. And yeah. One exception that I think is fascinating. Have a horse possessed by a Gaian spirit, by a wild spirit, then it can become a Garu mount. And even so, the line about wait for the automobile, it's accurate. Yeah, fair. Wait but for I'm... the automobile, it really is. 
I'm just um, saying creating a fetish horse would be cool, man. Creating a fetish horse. You could do it. You yep. could totally do it. Yep. You could, I, I don't know of uh, rules on making living fetishes, but you could totally make them up. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Yep. Um, I like the section on weapons. I do not like the terms for swords. Like, like our friend Jacob, I'm a, I'm a sword snob when it sure. comes to my naming conventions. They would just call all those types of swords a sword. Right. In the, they don't make distinctions. We make distinctions from our from our perspective. Broadswords aren't a thing. That's just a sword. A hand and a half sword is a sword you need more than one hand to use. Here's um, my thing with this wonderful table, which is, is absolutely amazing. But a strength plus six weapon? It's too much. Are you kidding me? Right. Um, Whoa. The, the, well, with the lance. Okay. Yeah, I know what you're looking at. Lance is fine. Lance is fine. Lance makes sense from a strength plus six because you're riding a horse using this lance. You've got the weight of the horse, the rider, and everything behind it. Yep. The great sword. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I would knock about two points off of all the damages on the sword section. Yep. To make them fair. Yep. Um, a great sword should have about a strength plus four. Sure. But uh, I can believe that because you've got two two hands and all your weight behind it. Yep. Um. A ten and a half strength plus three is fine. Works for me. Um, the hand axe should be like a strength two, strength plus one. Strength one. You can yeah. throw it. If you can. I'm. Uh, let's just plug our friend Jacob Klunder. The Dark Ages Armory solves this problem. Yeah. His book is so good. I just straight up replace my the stats with his with the stats from his book. I've used it in my most recent Dark Ages game. I will use it going forward. He's the guy we have writing the weapon section when we did Dark Ages Werewolf W20 for good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one more thing I want to pull about weapons, and that is everybody has a knife. It's a cutting tool. Yep. Nobody has a dagger except the nobles, and nobody is going to mistake a dagger for a knife. Right. One is a weapon. One is a tool. No one's going to mistake one for the other. Right. Then we get to the armor, and the guru's relationship with armor is fascinating. I love it um, because as a werewolf knight, I wear armor. As a werewolf knight, I dedicate my armor to me. As a werewolf knight, I am accepting that I am going to take a hit to my glory rating because I chose to wear armor onto the field rather than trusting the my guy I made my hide strong enough. But I am a guru knight and I am expected because of my social class to wear armor on the field. And so I do. But if you're not dedicating your armor and you try to shape change in it, you are in for a world of hurt. You are in for a world of hurt. (laughs) So here's my only issue with dedicating armor. By the rules, dedication is piece by piece. And most armor in this era is not a single piece of thing. Nope. You got the gambeson. You've got the hauberk, you've got the neck piece, you've got um, coif. That's the word I was going for, mm-hmm. coif. You've got the gauntlets. You've got, they're all separate pieces. It they don't yeah. make sense to lump them together like a suit of clothes. Right. So by the rules, you'd have to dedicate all of those individually. It gets outrageous. Now, of course, storytellers wave their hands a lot with dedication, but. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that is a thing. So I, 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 to quote me, 
I've, I'm running werewolf, not item management. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm with you. Um, let's uh, backtrack and, and talk about character creation. Real quick. Yes, because that is probably the most important chapter in the book from a rules and mechanics perspective. Sure. Um, this is what you need to take Werewolf the Apocalypse and downshift it to work in the Dark Ages. Yep. And as such, it assumes you have Werewolf the Dark Ages to provide the base rules. Right. Or you mean Vampire the Dark Ages? No. For the base we're, no, we're, I mean Werewolf the Apocalypse. Yes, right. So That's you've got, awkwardly, you need two books to run this effectively. You need the right. Vampire Dark Ages book because it references that. And you need Werewolf the Apocalypse, the modern book, because it references that. So this is a design problem mm -hmm. that they solve in the next edition um, differently than I think most werewolf fans would go with. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, you really do need both of the books. They copy a lot of the material from uh, Vampire of the Dark Ages over mm -hmm. here that they need, but they don't really do a whole lot um, in terms of downshifting the actual traits from werewolf, the apocalypse. Um, the character concepts are fine, but they're deeply enmeshed in the feudal system. Yep. And if there's anything I've learned from 20 years of running these games, you where player characters don't fit in systems. No. They don't. They don't fit in a staid society. The feudal society is static. You know where your place is. Don't get above your station. It doesn't have tolerance for outsiders. Player characters, by their very nature, are always outsiders. Yep. So they're not going to, these concepts are not going to work. They're points of origin, but you're not, but playing them is hard. Um, the exception is if you're going to run a manor based game where you have a Silver Fang who is related to or is the Lord of the Manor, and the other player characters are serving as their officials or something like that. That would make sense. That could work. And playing a troop game in this era is interesting. So playing like one werewolf with a like retinue of non-werewolves would be interesting. If particularly if you went like everyone is a lord of a different region mm -hmm. and you kind of round robin the game like on Thursday on this first Thursday Jim is playing the werewolf on you know every other Thursday we're switching who's playing the werewolf and then the werewolves all get together for a, an adventure. Like yeah. there's some interesting stuff to do there. You could do that. Um, the breeds and traits and all that stuff is fine. I think that everybody in this time period should have at least some rating in crafts mm -hmm. because you are literally making everything you need from your own hands. You may not be a guild craftsman, but no, you but know how to put, you know how to sew. Right. You know how to make a linen shirt. Every woman knows how to spin in this era. Everyone is, knows how to do this. Everyone is, knows how to make their own clothes, mm -hmm. crew, repair their houses, do all of this is crafts checks. Yep. I use the well-skilled craftsman rule that appears in later editions frequently with this stuff. Um, ride is an ability that you should have a real good reason as a werewolf to have. Right. See the aforementioned relationship between guru and horses. Mm -hmm. um, academics. I love this talent. I love this knowledge. You have to have it to read. I require that you have linguistics Latin before you take it at all. Sure. Because you can't read any of the written material at all if you don't have Latin. Right. And if you want to go above linguistics too, I want you to have Greek also because 
they drew a lot of the pagan philosophers, which were written primarily in Greek. Yep. So particularly in 1197, like in 200 years, I'm going to agree that there's more things written in the, the, in whatever vernacular, because with the printing press, when the printing press comes of age. Oh, sure. But that's like 400 years from now, 500 years from now. I'm thinking. No, Gutenberg Bible is for, is late 15th century. Mid 15th century, some reason it's was 1600s, but I mean, you're fine being wrong, yeah. By then, printing is well established, but printing okay. leads to the Renaissance, right? Oh, yeah, okay, fair. So, I'm uh, a little off on my time frame, but, but yeah, the but yeah, you, you books are a form of wealth, mm-hmm. books are a form of wealth. It, they in the opening story, they talked about how the library here had 20 volumes, right? And it was a great library, yeah. 20 volumes, right. Three of them were Bibles. Right. And they're all they're handwritten. Five. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So it's like, no, that's books are a form of wealth. Yep. And that's why they were chained to the bookshelves back in that day. Right. Some of us biblio hoarders think it's still a good practice. <laughs> um, the resources background here. Uh, I have a problem with the way they constructed it because it's assuming you're starting at the surf and moving to the noble. Yeah, which That's is wrong. Odd. Yeah, it's not how it's things wrong. You should yep. not do it that way. You should assume that if you have the resources background at all, at all, you're a noble. Particularly in this era. Like, again, because a couple of hundred years from now, there's a middle class, but not yet. There's really no middle class in this it era. It doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, there's merchants, sure, and there's townies, and sure, they have, there are people who deal in coin, sure. But they're not common. Right. Wealth in this era means one thing: land, right? And specifically, the right to for, the right to collect taxes from that land. Um, to be a commoner with your own lands is a stupid, rare thing. Right. All land ownership is concentrated in the nobility and the church. That's what gives them their sources of power. Yep. Um, and. If you own your own lands, you're only feeding yourself a little bit better than the average serf because you're not having to work the Lord's lands. Right. But even then, the Lord's lands were a relatively small percentage. Like in this era, there's a decent sense of I am I have only taking what I need as a noble for most of the nobles. Right. Because their their share is like 40 percent, roughly. Right. And it's not onerous. This idea that the peasants are taxed within an inch of their lives that appears in every sim- single movie about the era, it's wrong. Right. That's you, true of the 1800s. Want... That's what Marx was griping about because legitimately that's what was happening in that era. But it wasn't happening in the 1100s. Well, it was. wasn't. You were making plenty. As a noble, you thought in terms of expanding your holdings to make you wealthier. You didn't think of taxing my peasants harder right? because – they already pay you 50,000 different dues. Yeah, what are you going to squeeze blood from a stone? Like it's yeah, there's really, only so much you can get from out of them. Right. The other thing to think about and I want to point out this is that werewolves should be distinctly uncomfortable with using the money of this era and I'll tell you why. Silver. It's all silver. All, all of it. it. Yep. All of it. There are no gold coins minted in Europe from the age of Charlemagne till the middle of the 14th century. Yep. When the Italian cities start minting gold ducats. It's one of the things that baffles me with Dungeons and Dragons. And I, this is, sorry, this is a mini rant off topic, but gold coins should not be the D&D currency. It doesn't make any sense. The silver coin should be your like 
currency of the world? I can answer this question for you, Josh. Okay. I'll tell you why. Okay. I'll tell you exactly why the joke, the D&D system is gold, silver, copper. It's because the Byzantine system was gold, silver, copper. Sure. I get the that. The Byzantine system was gold, silver, copper. The Muslim system was gold, silver, copper. That's how it worked is you moved up in denominations from there. Again, that's assuming an abundance of gold, which right. is not true in Europe. Right. Europe doesn't have a whole lot of gold mines. What they do have is crap loads of available silver mines. Right. That's right. why silver is used to make the currency of the day. Yep. And werewolves should be distinctly uncomfortable with carrying large amounts of spacey for this exact reason. Yep. Making orders of men even more interesting, potentially. Like, maybe they've got the ability to handle silver more effectively. I think that would be cool. I'd want to know more about that. I think if you made a fetish that made your silver wallet purse not affect your Gnosis rating would be a nice nice fetish to have. Yep. The slick idea. I want to see what your favorite gift in the air is. See if we I, say it together. I don't know, because I skimmed that section and did not read it in depth i'm sorry <laughs> oh man you missed some cool stuff um the reason i like this section is because it's set up kind of as a this is what's different rather than this is reprinting every single gift from the original book they'll tell you these are ancient secrets they've been they've been forgotten but you can still learn them so if your players in the modern era want to pick up these gifts they just have to find the spirit who teaches them Nobody's asked in a while, but the gifts are still out there. They should still work. Um, but they tell you what's different. And it's like, otherwise, use the standard gifts in the book. Mm -hmm. And they change what's what's it. Um, there are a lot of what I call practical gifts in here. Stuff like the stuff like Trail of the Larder, Flames of Hestia, Plague Visage, Eve's Blessing, Trail, the, the gift of salt for for these are practical things mm -hmm. and a lot of PCs wouldn't take them, but then I would put them in a scenario where those gifts would come real handy, like a lean winter the gift of the larder would be a really useful trick in the lean winter. Yep. But the best gift in the entire book is for the Fenrir at rank four. And its name is iron can't bite. I carve a rune on my chest. Your swords bounce off my hide. No medieval weapon can touch you. They're all made of iron. Right. So iron, steel, whatever, you're immune. You could walk through a hail of stuff. They're, they're, the gifts in here are pretty cool, and you should give them, a, give them a go. But yes, we are pretty much done, and we are well beyond time. Let's talk a little bit about what the project that brought us together and where we're going to go with it from here. Only briefly, because we don't, we, I don't want to overpromise to our listeners, but... We have started work ages ago, years ago now, on a Werewolf 20th Anniversary Edition Dark Ages book that moves into this, In I think we wanted to go to the 1300s. Mm -hmm. I specifically set the start date at 1307. Right. Because I wanted to play with the Scottish War of Independence. Mm -hmm. There's also a couple other things going on there, like the Fall of the Knights Templar and other things of that, that ilk. But yeah, the start of the 14th, the turn of the 14th century. And the awesome thing from my perspective that we developed was this idea that the Garo Nation supposedly has a king, right? But 
no one's been the king for probably thousands of years. This era would have someone in the nation say, I'm, I'm doing the thing. I'm the king. We're getting this nation together. Yep. And, and it, you, you throw into the mix up a, uh, a uh, what would it, a Greek firebomb mm-hmm. of a young silver fang Arun emerges from nowhere wearing the legendary silver crown. Right. And he has the relic, which gives him by tradition, the right to claim leadership of the whole nation. Is he the real deal? Right. Are and you going to follow him? Not or every tribe is going to get behind. Right. There are some tribes that are like, no, who the, who do you think you are? You think the Fenrir are just going to be okay? Maybe. No. <laughs> the interesting thing is we, the way we wrote the Fenrir was that maybe they are actually okay with that because they're maybe like, oh, they cool, are. a king. We need a king. He's a good king. Let's get behind him. But maybe the children of Gaia aren't. Yeah. I really love what you did with the children of Gaia. And I think that you and I, I think you and I and uh, our friend Michael Jacobson between us have found a way to explain what happened to cause the split of unicorn and black unicorn. Yep. We also found a way to, I, I wrote in the opening story, the origin of the name of House Wormfoe. Mm-hmm. I wrote in and we've, uh, the book is, got a lot of chunk you were the one who got most of the finished chunks from the authors we were what we were doing good good set there yeah but i think we're only about 30 percent of the way with the book and so that's the 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 downside like we had a lot of ideas but we didn't have enough of the actual meat of the product so like that's where we need to take it we need to take it from idea to execution and once we can get the ambition back to do that as a group i think we will have gold that people will love. I think we will. And so I'm going to put out the call to all of our friends who are with this project, who are listening to this podcast. Come on, let's get back to work on this. Let's put it all. uh, I'm willing to throw my hat in to take the developer duties. If nobody else wants it, I've got it. I wrote a new outline as I was writing this by notes to prep for this interview, for this episode. And Josh and I just named four more books that are going to be dependent on this while writing <laughs> this episode. Right. We need to get back to work on this. But yes, we need to bring dark werewolves raging back into the dark ages for the 20th anniversary edition. And we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Right, Josh? We're going to do it. We are going to do it. So that said, I have a hard question for you. How many silver coins out of 10 would you give this book? I've been thinking about this since I started reading it. I'm so hard. It so tough. hard. I think it's really tough because there, this book should get a high rating, but there are elements that make me go, mm, I don't know. I, I, I would almost be tempted to give it all 10, but I'm going to have to dock them at least one for complacent werewolves. Mm-hmm. Dock them at least one for complacent werewolves. So I'll give it a solid nine out of 10 silver coins. If you like medieval era if you like werewolves if you like werewolf ultraviolence if you like putting your clave through leeches and who doesn't like that get this book get this book and run yourself some dark ages werewolf cool i'm only going to give it seven silver coins out of ten 
because it's missing some stuff. It's not bad. This is a good book. This would be a great start to a little, a, a mini line of books. I think it was meant to be that, but they never followed it up. Right, because it didn't sell, sadly. sadly. If it had been three or four books, I would have been like, yep, it's probably going to be golden or silver. But it's just missing a couple of things. It's good, but. So, like, get this if you want to do the things that Jim's talking about. Absolutely. Do that. But know that you're going to have to build some things to make this work. And this is, again, the impetus while we were like, we need to create some of those things for Werewolf 20th Anniversary Edition. We well, you know what we were doing. We were talking about when we were writing our setting chapters, we wanted to put in this, the, all the things they had in the, in the, in the England section. Yep. Cairns, notable places, um, what tribes are doing what around here, things like that give you things to hook onto when writing your story. Yep. So there has to be a reason for action. And that is the main thing that this book is missing is that hook for action. There are some of it here, but not enough. So mm -hmm. it's something we're going to develop. Yep. So, and uh, I guess that's pretty much it until we answer the question. When will you breach? You just stole my line, man. I knew I'd have to. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, everyone. Have a good one. This has been another episode of Werewolf the Podcast.